0: John, what we saw about worship in spirit and truth is a pivotal, pivotal text in the Bible on worship. Um, any study on worship, if you grab any good book out there on worship, it has to deal with this text. It's a great springboard, if you will, into this topic. Um, so I'd invite you to turn with me to John 4, and that's where we're going to begin, actually, this, this study on, on worship. And I'm going to Um, do my best to uh, encourage discussion. I want these to be discussion times. I want to hear from you. I want to ask you questions, and um, we'll work through it together. There's the outline, and uh, we will try to get through that this morning. So John four and last time we were together we're in verses sixteen through twenty six. Um, so the goal this morning, um, at least as this first point is concerned, is I want to review where we've been, what what this section in John was all about, what it was teaching us, and then use it as a springboard for the rest of our study. Um, so you can see there under the first point in your in your outline. I call this the newness of new covenant worship. Um, That's what uh, John 4 is about, the newness of new covenant worship. If you're a believer, you're in the new covenant, and that has significant implications on how you worship God. Um, So in this story, um, I won't review it all, but you'll remember that this, this woman at the well in Samaria brings up this topic. Uh, This debate between Jews and Samaritans of worship. Where's the proper location for worship? Is it in Jerusalem, as the Jews claimed, or is it in Samaria, as the Samaritans claimed? Um, And in verse, verse 22, Jesus gives the correct answer to that question. It's in Jerusalem, Jesus says. Up to this point in salvation history, God had appointed worship to take place in Jerusalem. Samaritans got it wrong, in other words. Location of Jerusalem was a fundamental requirement for true worship. Okay, so you got to get that. In the Old Testament, up to this point, if you wanted to be a true worshiper, one of the parts, not everything, there is a lot more to it, but one of the significant ingredients was location. You had to get the Jerusalem question right. Um, So before we move on, just ask you, we've talked about this several times, but. Um, Just by way of review, what was the function of the temple? What did the temple do? Why did it exist? There's a couple things that we could say. Any thoughts? God's dwelling place. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, so that's the first aspect. The the presence of God was manifested there. It was the gift, really, of the covenant. God's special presence with his people. Um, If you wanted to worship God, you directed it towards his presence as it was revealed at the temple. Good. That's number one. What's, what's another aspect? Another function? Yeah. It was a house of prayer. Oh, it was a house of prayer? Yep. Excellent. I was saying that would sort of fall under the mm. this category. His his presence, because his presence is there. You directed prayer there. You directed worship there. You directed all your activities centered around that. Excellent. Yep. What else? Offerings. Uh, yes. The uh, sacrifices. <laughs> the the rituals. Yeah, and all that was for the purpose of purification, to purify his people, to facilitate a holy God living in the midst of an unholy people. You didn't have that, you consume them all. You had to have this way for them to dwell together. So you have two functions of the temple, presence and purification, the presence of God and the purification of his people. Um, That's very significant because Jesus is going to tell us that with his coming, All that's going to be decisively changed because Jesus fulfills both of those aspects he fulfills divine presence and he fulfills the purification of the temple and so in verse 23 Jesus gives her this answer she was not expecting she was expecting a good old debate between Jews and Samaritans Um, it's in Jerusalem no it's in Samaria it's in Jerusalem no it's in Samaria and Jesus gives her an answer. I just had to knock her socks off, off her feet. In verse 23, he says an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Back up in verse 21, he says the hour is coming when not on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is telling her that an hour is coming in which the location issue, which has been so crucial to true worship, Up to this point, a time's coming when that's going to be irrelevant. A time is coming when the location issue will be irrelevant for true worship. Now, in John, what does the hour refer to? Remember, we've talked about this. The hour is coming. What is that? Remember? Good. Almost always in John, the hour refers to Christ's exaltation through his crucifixion, the, the point in which... The Son of God will make atonement for sin once and for all. So he says the hour is coming. The hour of his cross is coming, which will transform worship. It will deal with the purification once and for all. But then he says it is now here. So what does Jesus say that? The hour is coming, the cross, and it's also now here. At the moment he's speaking with the woman in, in Samaria. Why does he say that to you? Yeah, I would say so. That's very good because of his very presence. So while he hasn't accomplished redemption yet, the very presence of Christ, remember John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with man in the person of Christ dwelt with his people in a very unique and special way, never before experienced. And that's what he tells the woman in the incarnation. God has come to dwell the presence of God in a way greater than the temple. And in the death of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, sin has been dealt with. Such that the entire system of sacrifice and purification is fulfilled. It's done away with. It's over. The temple existed to prepare for Christ. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God. So that's a very significant aspect of New Covenant worship. We have a new temple. It's Christ. What else is new and better about New Covenant worship? This is letter B under point one on your outline. What else is new and better? In the New Covenant, a shift, this is very significant, a shift takes place from location to manner. Look back at verse 21. The hour is coming when not in, or on, this mountain, or in Jerusalem. Look at verse 23. But the true worshipers worship the Father in, same Greek word, not in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. The first in is location, the second in is manner. A shift is happening where true worship is not centered on location, but in manner. It's very significant as we will we'll see. Verse 23 says that these are true worshipers. Now, when it says true worshipers, this is another key word in John. He likes to use the word true. The idea isn't so much true versus false. That's part of it. Think about when Jesus says, I am the true bread. He's not saying that all other bread is false. He's saying he is the fulfillment, the ultimate substance, the ultimate bread to which all other bread points to. The man in the wilderness. It was real bread, but it was a shadow. It was preparatory for Christ. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Israel was called the vine in the Old Testament. Jesus is the true vine means he is the fulfillment. He is the ultimate expression of what all Israel was supposed to be. Here, the true worshiper isn't so much true versus false. The true worshiper is the one who embodies all the Old Testament expectations for an ideal worshiper. Okay, so that's what Jesus is saying. In the New Covenant, true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and truth, we're going to define that in a minute, embody all the ideals of what God desired in the Old Testament for worship. That is what is so significant about New Covenant worship. Because of Christ, in the New Covenant, God receives the true worship which he has always desired, but in a way the Old Covenant could never secure. The Old Covenant couldn't produce the kind of worshipers that God wants. So let's look at these one by one. What kind of worshippers are New Covenant worshippers? They worship in spirit and truth. Yes? I could just ask you a question on that. Mm-hmm.
1: Is it wrong to say, because under point B you have... Primarily concerned with the manner, rather than the location. Yes. But is it wrong to say? Isn't God always? Hasn't He always been concerned with the manner? Excellent. Even throughout all of the mm-hmm. old covenant. I mean, if you look at Cain and Abel. Yep. And the sacrifices. Like He's He's always concerned
0: with the manner. Absolutely. but The new covenant shifts. Yep. Just so I'm getting this. I'm trying. That's exactly to right. So you can think old covenant. There was the manner, the heart. We're going to actually talk about this under oh, okay. the spirit, okay. yeah. the heart, and the location. New Covenant, location, external forms fall off. But why is that? Do we have something less or something greater in the New Covenant? I'd say we have something greater and better. Um, but, yeah, very good question. We're going we're gonna to nail that right now. Very good. Um, in spirit, what does that mean? In spirit. Last time we defined in spirit okay. means worship that is done with our spirits. The human spirit, the heart, the innermost being. What, he, what, what Bobby is saying, the, what the Old Testament commanded, the true you worships God. But it is the spirit which has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. The human spirit is dead towards God. So Jesus is telling the woman at the well, she's dead. She needs living water. To worship in spirit means to worship from a heart which has been born again. In other words, if you want to worship God all right, you have to be regenerate. Only regenerate people can worship God if they possess the Spirit. That's what it means, worship in Spirit. You're alive in Spirit because of the Holy Spirit towards God. Why does God delight in this? Look at verse 24. It's because God is Spirit. does it mean the Holy Spirit. It means God is spiritual. He's primarily spiritual in His nature. That's why He didn't merely desire sacrifices. You don't serve God with bulls and rams. He wants spiritual sacrifices because he's mainly spirit. He doesn't need physical things. God desires spiritual worship because it accords with his nature. And this is going again, back to what Bobby was saying. This has always been God's desire. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we hear that God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. Um, we don't have time this morning, but go back to Psalm 50 and 51. Very significant about the heart of true worship that God desires. He says, if I was hungry, I'm not going to tell you. Do I eat bulls and goats? No, I'm not served. I own all these things. I'm the creator of it all. I own it all. What are you going to bring to me? And it concludes saying, bring the Lord a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's a true worship in the heart that God desires. So that has always been. So I would say that is not new in New Covenant worship, this desire of God. He's always desired this. But what is new here in John 4? I'd say there's two things. Number one, what is new is that this spiritual worship was the ideal in the Old Testament, but it was rarely experienced. Just read the prophets. (laughs) Israel almost never fulfilled their worship as they ought to do. Oh, they got the mechanics right, but they failed in this heart-level worship. But in the New Covenant, the entire covenant community, everybody who belongs to the New Covenant, a believer in Christ, worships God in this way. That's the point. That's what is new. Number two, what else is new? What else is new is that those who worship the Father in spirit worship exclusively spiritual, not determined by location and outward form. So that's it. So worship in the New Covenant is exclusively spiritual. These outward forms of sacrifice and temple and ritual and location and mountain, they fall on the wayside. Well, the question is why? Well, why not? Well, were those things bad? Were they wrong? Why Why do they have to fall away? I would say it's because these outward forms of worship in the Old Testament were in anticipation for this kind of worship. They were preparing for it. They were showing what a true worshiper would look like, giving a picture. They were shadows to give way to reality. Yeah. So, when we read through, especially like the Psalms, yep. um, how do you think, like in Psalms 51,
1: David, that yep. right, Dan talks about, and about the walls of Jerusalem and everything, like how do this New
0: Testament yes. believers look at it? Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. As we're just reading, like, what, how do we think about that, you know? So you mean, like, eschatologically in the future for the kingdom? Sure, and? Yeah. In, yeah. yeah. just in our daily devotions yep. or something like that, we're reading through that. You know, like, we're obviously not concerned about trying to get to Jerusalem yes. right now. Yep. You know? um, so how— But well, what function does Jerusalem yeah. have? That's a massive question. And one that um, I can't tackle this morning okay. and one that I—I uh, I, I would say—so So, so there, there's debate on that. So the, I believe in the kingdom. I'm premillennial. Um, there's debate. Will there be a new temple constructed in the kingdom? Um, right. Some dispensationalists said yes, there will. It won't be for atonement. Yeah. It will be for memorial. Um, I uh, I tend to lean away from that. I'm not going to say anything definitive on it. Okay. Um, as far as Jerusalem, um, yeah, that, that, that's a very debated, uh, very debated p- topic. Um, so a lot of that has to do with your S- uh, eschatology, and uh, so I don't have okay, all so my uh, okay. just, things nailed down, down there. So, yeah, so, okay. it's a it's a big topic, and okay. I hope one day we can we can tackle it. so well, you know, yeah. and Brian, uh, right, that's really a good question. Uh, and I was reading this morning mm-hmm. uh, in Ezekiel, the yep. end of Ezekiel. I mean, that it's massive. It is, yep. and and so it it causes you to, it to wonder because that looks like that's. Pointing towards the millennial kingdom, yes. And there's going to be sacrifices and burnt offerings and the, the rebuilding of the temple. So anyway, I don't want to throw a cog with yep. what you're trying to share here. But but a lot of this has to do with interpretive um, issues. So how are you going to interpret the temple in Ezekiel's vision? Is it a real temple, or is it picturing true worship um, that's going to be happening? Is it is it is it um, symbolic? So um, I'm not going to answer that. Um, so it does. How many? It gets down in the nitty gritties. Okay. Um, I'll just say Revelation 22 applies that to the new heavens and new earth where there's no temple. Um, yeah. So it's very significant. So anyway, um, very good questions. And uh, um, I am not prepared to think about that. So. <laughs> I'm not either. <laughs> <laughs> but it shows you're thinking. And that shows you're thinking about these implications. What we're saying has implications on a lot of this stuff. Um, so, so be thinking through, through that. Very good. But as far as how we are to live now between Christ's coming, first and second coming, I think we all agree um, that we worship in spirit and in truth. So, what does in truth mean now? In truth means that it's worship directed by God's revelation. Jesus said that the Samaritans worshiped what they did not know, the Samaritans rejected everything except for the first five books of the Bible. They didn't have a Davidic king. They rejected Jerusalem because they didn't have the prophets or the Psalms or any of that. They didn't have God's complete revelation. And so their worship was false. We worship God only in the ways that he tells us. And with the coming of Christ, the fullness of God's revelation is given. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. Jesus is God's fullest and final disclosure of his revelation. In other words, in New Covenant worship, any and all worship is Christ centered worship. We worship the Father centered around Christ. There's implications on corporate worship and day to day worship in our lives. Christ centered. We worship God in dependence upon Christ's atonement and his work for us. And we worship the Father. Through Christ. He's our mediator. We approach God in Jesus' name. When you pray in Jesus' name, that's very significant. Worship in truth means mainly we worship Christ-centered. So what does it mean then to worship in spirit and truth? I would I would summarize it like this: to worship in spirit and truth is centered around Christ, directed to the Father, through a heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. So just hear how Trinitarian that is. To be a Christian is to be a Trinitarian. You worship the Father through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, who's changed your heart. That's all through the Bible. That is what a New Covenant believer and worshiper is. And all of the Old Testament was preparing for this. The ideal worshiper, which is what you and I are. Think about that. That's significant. You are the ideal worshiper. I don't feel like it. But you have an identity first before you have an experience. You are that because of what Christ has done for you. Um, so any questions on that before we, before we move on? We're just laying a foundation. We're going to come back to uh, the newness of new covenant worship and practical implications that has on our lives. Um, let me just say this. You have all that you need to be a worshiper of God. You don't need some more rituals. You don't need some more trappings. You don't need some more extra second experience. You have all you need because you have Christ and you have the Holy Spirit. Um, God has equipped you to worship him. Any questions? Any thoughts on this before we talk about it? Yeah. So just to get this straight, um, location mattered in the Old Testament yep. because in the Old Testament, the temple was the dwelling place of God. Yep. So it made sense to worship God. Where he dwelt. Yes. And now that like we are the temple of God, yeah. Christ. That's why location doesn't matter. So I would I would say first, Christ is the temple. He is the ultimate fulfillment. We are a temple, also Paul says, but in a secondary sense, because we possess the Holy Spirit. Primarily Christ is the temple. So our worship, Old Testament worship was directed towards the building, the temple, on Jerusalem. New covenant worship is directed. Towards Christ, the new temple, who fulfills the presence of God and who fulfills the purification. All of our worship to the Father is directed through the temple, Christ. That's what it means to worship in truth, in Christ, centered around Christ, depending upon his work for us. I approach the Father in Jesus' name, depending upon what Christ accomplished on my behalf. Uh, He is my temple. So that's what I would say is the newness of new covenant worship. And it enables us to truly worship the Father because we've been changed in our hearts. We're forgiven in a way the old covenant believers are never forgiven. We're changed in our hearts in a way the old covenant believers only a few of them were, were transformed in, in our hearts. Uh, we possess His Spirit. So does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Excellent. Any other but thoughts? Questions? Yeah. I was reading, it might be a small point, but I
1: was reading a book by um, Ligan Duncan on worship and he said that the plural in verse 23 is significant, seeking worshipers mm-hmm. and people. And it's a small point, but it just points to the corporate nature of worship um, in the New Covenant. Yeah. That it's not just, you know, worshiping in your tree stand by yourself. And um, again, I, I don't think it's worse. the main thrust of the verse, probably, but, sure. you know, is at least something yep. you
0: can allow. Yep. That's really good. So we're going to come back. Uh, next week, we're going to try to n- hammer down, what do we mean by worship? So we're talking worship, worship. What, what does that mean? So what we're going to do next week, there, there, there's a couple words in the Bible that are worship words. We're going to nail down what those are, and then we're going to come back to this passage and because um, it, it uses one of these worship words that's not used much more in the New Testament because it becomes very spiritual. It becomes very inward. This is a very temple word, this word for worship, worship. Um, and so I, I would say, yes, it involves the corporate. But it also involves the individual. And so there's these two aspects we're going to see of worship. There's corporate worship at church, which is what we often think about. And there's worship in the entirety of our lives and being. So yes, I would say absolute because this is a temple context. Um, so it's both. Um, it's really good. Great. Hope your uh, appetite is, is whetted for uh, next week. So some good stuff coming. Well, look at the next point in your outline. Um, This is the next and final point that I want to tackle this morning. God's ultimate aim in creation and redemption is his worship. That's it. Or, say it another way, God deserves worship. He deserves worship because he's creator and he's redeemer. So if you remember back a few weeks ago, really the first week we were back from... Uh, being gone from coronavirus, we said that God's presence and dwelling with man in a wor- in a, a, with a holy humanity is the ultimate goal of his creation and his redemption. He created the world so that he would dwell with man and the covenants progressing to the very end purpose is to restore this relationship. We're saying the same thing this morning from a different angle. God's ultimate goal and purpose in his creation and his redemption is to restore his worship. Yeah. Dwelling with man who is worshiping him. Him. That's what it's all been about. That's what it's all about. Um, so this morning I just want to walk through a few texts um, that make this, this point. And the first one is that God's goal in creation is his worship. We can go to a gazillion texts, we can go to the Psalms, we go anywhere. I just want to take you to Revelation 4. Okay. Revelation chapter 4. God's goal. Creation is worship. Say it the other way. God deserves worship because he's the creator. Revelation 4, 9. It's a throne room. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne lives forever and ever. Twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. That's significant. God created everything for his worship. He's worthy of worship first and foremost because he's the creator. You owe worship to God because he's your creator. That applies to every single person you're going to come in contact with. Um, That's where you start in the gospel. You owe God worship because he's your creator. He's worthy because he created all things. And this goes beyond praising him for the goodness and the beauty of creation. You Think of some of the Psalms. Worship God because of the, the beauty displayed in creation. That, that, that's true. He's worthy of that. But that's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason we worship God because he's the creator is because of his authority and of his own intrinsic nature and worth and value as God, as our creator. That's why we worship him. That's why we owe him worship. The main idea here is that he is worthy of worship and devotion because all things belong to him and all things are under his authority. Next week when we tackle one of the words of worship, the idea is paying homage, submission, bowing, coming under the greatness and the authority and ownership of God. He's worthy. We must worship him for his own intrinsic worth and So to put it another way, he's worthy of worship before and apart from any of his saving acts. So we often think of worship as a response to his redemption. I worship God because he saved me. I worship God because of what he's done for me, and that's true. And we see that all over the Bible. The point we're making is that he's worthy of worship before any of that. Primarily because of his own innate Worth and character as God and as creator. In other words, God, we owe him worship not merely because of his salvation, but because of his own intrinsic being and worth. So, I'll ask you a quick question why is that important to get? What might we be in danger of if we um, forget, number one, uh, if we exclusively worship him because of redemption, because of his salvation? What do you think? Any dangers? Anything that could happen?
1: We can worship the gift more than the giver. Yeah. Yep. Even being thankful for salvation mm-hmm. can be self-focused for <laughs> the wrong reasons. Yep. I, I want to get out of hell free card. Yep. I don't want to go there, of course. Yep. But it could still be self-focused mm-hmm. instead of God-focused. Excellent. Now,
0: I don't think worship can be conditional. mm mm-hmm because yeah. then we can look at all the evil in the world. and, Well, God has redeemed everyone. Good. Therefore, yep. Okay. Then worship becomes conditional. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. So it, it really undercuts evangelism. What, what do you go after the unbeliever with? You owe God worship. That that is where we must begin. It's not conditional. It's good. You know, another thing. Well, side note is that uh, this worship comes from knowledge. Mm-hmm. And think of how many times in the Old Testament mm-hmm. where God's will do something that you, and will say then you will know mm. that I am God. Yeah. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That's really good. And uh, yeah. it, it comes to knowledge. It does. You know, like what we're doing here. As we read. Until to... yeah, you've been reading Ezekiel. That's the, that's the refrain. <laughs> that's really good. It really is. And that's why it culminates with worship. Um, yeah. Really good. I would say there's two dangers. The first uh, what we've already picked up is we'll be led into man-centeredness. Not automatically, but easily think. Everything then becomes, okay, God, great, you're worthy of worship because of what you've done for, for me. Um, and certainly there's thanksgiving and in, in, in response to God because what he's done. But he's primarily deserving of it because of who he is. That's it. Number two, we would learn, lose much of the significance of what salvation is. His salvation is much more Then the get-out-of-jail-free card. His salvation has massive significance to do what? To restore us to this original condition, which is what our next point is. Number two. We obviously failed at this worship of God, and so God from the very beginning was working out his purposes in salvation, which not only included deliverance from judgment, but it included restoring us to this original purpose God created us. The total worship of him for his own being and character as God, creator, lord, authority, ruler, owner of all. That's what redemption was about. So you see on your outline, there, there's sort of two aspects to God's work of redemption. And I'm going to try to repeat these several times. Very important. In God's redemption, two things happen. The first thing, God enables his people to worship him rightly. His salvation, his redemption, he enables us to worship him rightly. So, think about all the gifts of salvation. What are some of them? Reconciliation, Reconciliation. Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, resurrection. resurrection, justification, eternal life. All these gifts of salvation, they are not ends in themselves. God gives us these gifts. Why? To enable us to worship him. You can't worship God if you're covered in guilt. You can't worship God if you have no way to access Him. It exists to enable us to worship Him. Number two, God's salvation heightens our responsibility to worship Him. We are obligated to worship Him, not only now because He's our creator, but also because He's our Redeemer. Believers, everyone's obligated to worship. Believers are doubly obligated to worship. If you've experienced redemption, you're doubly obligated It's a duty yeah. to worship Him. Creator and Redeemer. You belong to Him in a new way, with a new relationship. So we got about seven minutes. I want to go really quickly through um, a few texts with you. Um, we go to, again, a again, number of texts. But I just want to show you a few from the book of Exodus. This is God's plan. Redemption was unto worship. That's always the end goal. Old Testament and New Testament. So go with me to Exodus, chapter 3. What was the ends of his salvation? To what ends did he save his people in the Exodus? Why did he do the Exodus? Why did he save his people out of Egypt? What was the end goal of that? What was it unto? Was it just so that they didn't have to be in slavery to Egypt? Just so they could have a nice promised land to live into? What is the purpose of it? Look at verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. This is the burning bush. He said, but I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That word serve, we're going to tackle it next week. It's a key worship word. It's everywhere. It's a worship word. You'll serve God on this mountain. All right, flip over to chapter 4, Verse 23. Let my son go that he may serve me. Chapter 5, verse 1. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. When you you read these, it's just a refrain over and over in these stories. You might think, all right, yeah, that, that's sort of like a duplicitous motive. Like, re, yeah, right, Moses, that's really what you want to go do. We, we know you just want to escape from Egypt. That sort of sounds like what, what's going on. He's not giving the whole truth. Actually, it's the other way around. The exodus is just a small part of the goal. The ultimate goal was what? Deliverance out of Egypt for service of God at the mountain, for worship of God. So Moses isn't trying to pull a fast one to Pharaoh like, hey, we just want to go out and serve, but really we're just trying to get out of Egypt. No, 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 no the other way around. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. So for the sake of time, we won't look at any more, but the point is that God's deliverance of Israel, the gifts he gave them, was unto worship. The goal was service to God in worship worship. David Peterson said that the book of Exodus proclaims that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt so that they may serve or worship him exclusively. They are redeemed in order to engage with God initially at the mountain, then in the wilderness, and finally in the land which is to be given to them. That was the goal of God's redemption. But it doesn't end in the Old Testament or at the Exodus. In the New Testament we see the same pattern. The salvation you've experienced is is not an ends in itself. It is unto worship. That's why you've been saved. For worship. You can see this in John 4, right? Jesus talks about the living water he's going to give to this woman. Transform her life, eternal life. For what ends? So that she can worship in spirit and truth. That's the end goal. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Jesus says, or Paul says, You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have been bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. That's the goal. You've been bought, and you owe God worship. For the sake of time, we're just gonna to go to a couple of these passages. Go go to Hebrews chapter nine. We've got three minutes. Hebrews chapter nine. I'll just show you this one passage. You can look at the other ones up. Hebrews chapter nine, verse fourteen. <laughs> Hebrews nine, fourteen. It's talking about the comparison, the Sacrifice of the Old and New Covenant, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works? That's good news. Forgiveness of sin, all the defilement and guilt in my mind in my life. There's not a period there. How does it end? To serve the living God. That's that worship word, the same worship word that we just saw in the Old Testament. Same Greek word, to serve in a life of worship, the living God. That's why you've been saved. That's why you've been forgiven. That's why you have everything, the purpose of service to God. Go to Revelation on your own time, 22, 1 to 3. That's how it ends. New creation, and it ends, and his servants will serve him. So in closing, um, just a couple minutes here. Um, Unpack a couple implications for us.
1: We've
0: already talked about this, how crucial it is to highlight the importance of worship in how we share the gospel and think of the gospel. Um, We need the gospel, we failed worship to God. The essence of repentance is turning to worship God. The whole reason we're saved is unto being a worshiping people. So what do you think are some errors? will that happen if we get this wrong um, in our understanding of the gospel, why we need the gospel and the whole purpose of the gospel what are some errors that might creep into our lives or in the church um, if we get this wrong, if we divorce worship from it altogether we'll, get a we'll have a false picture of who God is excellent, yeah, he's a servant of us mainly right, yep yep, Good.
1: Maybe focus on the symptoms hmm. instead of getting to the root that's worship. So, you know, how to fix your marriage or how to, you know, stop drinking or do whatever, but um, not getting to the root issue, which is worship. It is.
0: It is. Romans 1. That's the core issue with mm-hmm. us worship to God. Mm-hmm. It's easy believism. Mm-hmm. Go to heaven. I mean, it, 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 so often, I think in evangelicalism, we just hear so, so much. Believe in Jesus so you could get forgiveness of sins and go to heaven when you die. Well, those are precious truths, praise God. But that's not the whole of the gospel. The whole of the gospel is so that you can be restored to what God created you to be. Repent, turn to him in worship, so you can devote your life to him in worship. That's what the gospel is. That's why it's radical and hard to believe, to use MacArthur's title. It saves us from self-centered living. Right? I'm not saved so that now I can just enjoy the promised land and all the fruits and live my life how I want. I've been saved to devote myself to worship. It changes how we encounter suffering. It changes how we encounter everything. Hard marriages, whatever it is. Everything in my life exists for worship. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. And that's what all you're going to be doing for eternity. <laughs> and believe me, it's much more than playing harps on clouds. It's all much. It's glorious. Number two. It's the greatest gift. Yes, it's an obligation. Yes, it's a duty. Yes, you must worship. It is the greatest gift of salvation. The greatest gift of salvation is not the forgiveness of sins, it is the enablement to worship God. In your free time, go read Psalm 43. The psalmist says, then I will go to God, talking about temple worship, to God, my exceedingly great joy. That's what worship is. Joy. True worship of God. You want joy? Be a worshiper. Number three, our identity is primary this. Redeemed. Worshippers. Remember that. That's who you are. You've been redeemed for worship. Let that color and flavor your life. That's why you exist. You don't exist for yourself. You exist. For worship. So next week, I um, hope that, what's your appetite? We're going to tackle, okay, so what is this thing called worship? Um, and we're going to try to just look at tons of texts, Old Testament, New Testament, nail down what it is, and then hopefully in the next couple weeks we'll think about application for corporate worship, and then our individual lives. So any questions, comments? Looking forward to the study. Um, if you're interested in some resources, I can get them to you. Um, some really good ones that are out there. Great. All right, let me pray. Holy God, you're worthy of worship. And we confess we are failures. Thank you so much for Christ. It cleanses us from all sin and our failure to do this gives us your spirit, transforms us now into people who are able to worship you. And Lord, we're obligated even more to do so because of how much you've loved us and we worship you because of how good you are. you been to us, your salvation for us. Lord, we love you. Thank you. Help us, Lord, to devote our lives to you. It's all yours. Forgive us, Lord, for our self-worship. Amen. That you would continue to transform us. Help us now as we go to corporate worship. And every bit of it would be directed in hearts of submission and trust and love and devotion to you. Love it. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you are
1: dismissed.